the scripture text. The Old Testament reading listed in the bulletin is Psalm 119. Uh, I will not break my word from last week and uh, read the whole thing. Uh, I would like to read four of the stanzas. The first, uh, the olive stanza, and I will tell you which ones the others as we get there. I begin reading in Psalm 119, verse 1, with the olive stanza. Hear the word of God. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. I would ask you to, uh, if you are following along, you may turn to the third stanza, the Gimel stanza, beginning in verse 17. Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. I turn now to verse 65 and the Tet stanza. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. And finally, we turn to the final stanza. The Tav stanza, beginning in verse 169. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me. For I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you, and let your rules help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. This ends our reading from the Old Testament. 
I wouldn't expect anyone to remember this, uh, but I began preaching uh, in Psalm 119 uh, toward the end of 2019. So I've been at this for a little while, and last Sunday we considered uh, the last stanzas. And I indicated that uh, this morning uh, that we would think about Psalm 119 as a whole, as a sort of a recap uh, looking at this psalm. Of course, we can't do that in great detail. But one of the things that we wonder about as we read and meditate upon this very long psalm, this longest chapter in the scriptures, uh, how does the psalm fit together? Uh, what is the psalmist telling us about himself and his, his spiritual condition? And more importantly, what does this psalm teach his readers? What does it teach us, especially we who are living under the new covenant and are reading this uh, after the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ? And so we begin this morning by thinking about the movement of this psalm. So I want to look with you first now at this psalm from beginning to end and how the psalmist develops his thoughts. Psalm 119 has a grand opening. In the Aleph and Beit stanzas, the psalmist describes quite clearly how the law of God requires perfect obedience. It requires devotion from the bottom of one's heart. And with only some slight suggestion otherwise, the psalmist portrays himself as one who is indeed wholly committed to God's law, who recognizes its requirements for holistic obedience, and who is committed to offering that devotion to God and his word. And yet we don't need to read very far into Psalm 119 before we learn that things are a bit more complicated than we may have gathered from the opening stanzas. We not only read the Olive stanza a few minutes ago, but we read the Gimel stanza. And here already in the third stanza, we find that something is very wrong with the psalmist, with his condition. For here, already the psalmist tells us that he is a sojourner on the earth. He indicates to us that he is not living comfortably and prosperously in his home, on the plot of ground that God gave to his ancestors long before. He is not enjoying the blessedness that God had promised to his people if they were obedient and faithful to him. <coughs> no, he is a sojourner. Apparently, he is away from the promised land, living in a foreign place. He tells us also that he is persecuted by princes. He tells us in the Dalit stanza that his soul is clinging to the dust. We might say about this psalmist that he is in exile, whether it is the Babylonian exile or whether it is some other event in Israel's history that he's participating in. We know that things are not well with this psalmist, and yet he has portrayed himself as one who is obedient to God's law. And so we meet a puzzle 
here early in Psalm 119. How can it be that this man who is so committed to God's law is suffering so terribly, especially when God's law has promised blessing to those who obey? Now, as we continue looking at Psalm 119, as we look at the next four stanzas, Hey, Vav, Zion, and Ket, we find the psalmist developing, I might say, her twin themes. On the one hand, the psalmist is confident. This is a man of faith, and he is expressing a confidence that the Lord is going to deliver him. The Lord has not forgotten him. The Lord is going to help him. And there is much in these stanzas that expresses a great confidence in the grace of God. And yet, in these stanzas, the psalmist will not let us forget about his dire situation. He keeps coming back again and again to the fact that he is under persecution and that he is suffering in all sorts of ways. He reminds us, for example, in the Zion stanza, that he is a sojourner. In case we have forgotten, he reemphasizes this point. In fact, in the verse before he did that, in verse 53, he talks about his hot indignation at the wicked. The wicked are persecuting him, and he is angry about that. In these stanzas also, he mentions a couple of times that he is holding vigil at night. He talks about his nighttime activity. And in the scriptures, very often, when the biblical writers talk about the night, talking about what's happening in the darkness, it's a sign that not, things are not good. Bad things tend to happen at night. Night tends to represent the sorrow and the trials of the soul. And we keep wondering, why is our psalmist in this condition, this man of faith, this man of apparent commitment to God's word? He is a man who is suffering greatly. And yet we come to the Tet and Yod stanzas. Beginning in verse 65, this was Tet stanza was one of those that I read a few minutes ago. And it is here that we find quite a breakthrough in this psalm. A theological breakthrough, we might say. Here the psalmist tells us something. It doesn't solve all of our, all of our problems, doesn't answer all of our questions, but it does illuminate some very important things. Here the psalmist tells us why he is in exile. He tells us finally why he's a sojourner. He was a rebel. The psalmist has talked a lot about his commitment to God and his law up to this point in the psalm. But here he tells us, particularly verse 67, for the first time, he says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. The psalmist was one who uh, has not always been so committed to God's word. And we learn in these stanzas, Tet and Yod, not only that he was a rebel against God, but that God afflicted him. And he makes clear that this affliction was punishment. This affliction was God's judgment upon him for his rebellion. And in fact, this is exactly what we would expect, given what God's law teaches. He's been talking about God's law, 
And God's law says that those who are rebels, those Israelites who were rebels against God, they would indeed be punished. Indeed, they would be exiled from their land. And yet in these stanzas, these Tatanyot stanzas, the psalmist also tells us something that is very encouraging. He tells us that he has repented. He has learned. He has turned back to his God, and he has been restored. If not in his outward condition, at least in his inward condition. Spiritually, he has been restored to God. And not only that, but he shares with us that other Israelites, his fellow his fellow countrymen, have been encouraged through him. He says in verse 74, those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. He says in verse 79, let those who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimonies. His example of repentance and restoration has been an encouragement for others. Well, at this point, we might we might expect things to be very positive from here on out, but that would certainly be wrong. Because in the cough stands, the beginning in verse 81, the psalmist actually puts before us the darkest of the stanzas in Psalm 119. And he does this as we approach the halfway point, because cough stanza is the final stanza of the first half of this psalm. Here, the psalmist tells us things like, for example, that he has become like a wineskin in the smoke. Whatever exactly that is, it's not something that you want to be. The psalmist says almost nothing positive about his own condition, about his own spiritual state, about his own social position in the cough stanza. He reminds us that he is suffering. He is suffering bitterly. And then we come to the halfway point of this psalm. To use a golf analogy, we make the turn, and we are met by perhaps the two most positive stanzas in Psalm 119. If ever there was a U-turn in Scripture, well, I can think of a couple other big U-turns in Scripture, but this is one of them in which we seem to be going one direction, and it's not a good direction. And the psalmist turns, and the Lamed stanza, the Mem stanza, and even in the beginning of the Nun stanza, we find some of the most exalted, some of the most familiar statements in Psalm 119. Here, the psalmist tells us that God's word is fixed and established. It cannot be moved. He reminds us that God's word is true, He speaks about how profound God's word is. All perfection has a limit, he says, at the end of the Lamed's stanza. But he has not seen any limit to God's word. It is exceedingly broad. And then in the Mem stanza, he speaks about, we sang this just uh, a bit earlier, about how he loves God's law and about how God's law imparts wisdom, understanding, beginning of the nun stanza, how God's word is a lamp to his feet, a light to his path. And we may wonder why the psalmist says these wonderful, beautiful things about God's word. 
But why he says it here in this psalm, here early in the second part of Psalm 119. And, of course, these are generally true things about God's word. They're, it's fixed, it's wonderful, it gives wisdom. But we may see here in the psalmist this fact that he has learned something, something he did not understand previously. Undoubtedly, the psalmist had been taught God's law from an early age, but earlier when he was talking about how he had rebelled and been punished, he talked about how it was good that he was afflicted, that he had learned. He had learned something about God's word through that experience of affliction and repentance and restoration. And certainly one of the things that he had opportunity to learn was that God's law, taken in a broad sense, God's law, those opening five books of Scripture, they not only set forth God's law in the sense of commands, telling us what we should do, but those books also set before us God's grace to sinners. And God had said to Israel, when you disobey me, when I send you far from your land, when I send you into exile, I will restore you. I will bring you back. God had promised to renew his grace to his sinful, rebellious people. The psalmist is surely reflecting, has reflected on those things. And he sees the beauty and the encouragement and the grace and the illumination of God's law as he understands these things. And so we wonder as we continue looking at Psalm 119, where does the psalmist go from here? He has repented. He has been restored to God's favor. He is confident that God is going to, God is going to bring his people back. But what, what will he say next? And as he moves to the psalmic and Ion stanzas, beginning in verse 113, the psalmist reflects here on the judgment of God. Here his focus is not on God's judgment against his covenant people, Israel, but against the enemies of God and his people. The psalmist calls God to judge their enemies. And this is part of the salvation of God's people. For God's people to be saved, their enemies must be judged. That is true throughout the scriptures, and it was something that the psalmist understood. And the psalmist was so zealous for this that in verse 126, he actually tells God that it was time for him to act. He tells God that he needs to get to work judging his people, or judging their enemies and saving his people, their restoration depends upon this. And then in the following stanzas, the Pei, Tzadi, Kof, and Resh stanza, the psalmist uh, continues to look forward to this full restoration that God would bring to his people when he would rescue them out of their state of sojourning, out of their state of exile. In Pei and Tzadi, beginning in verse 129, the psalmist lays out certain feelings, deep feelings, passions that he is experiencing. He talks about how he longs, his longing for God and his word. He talks about his sorrow. 
his deep grief over his sins and the sins of his people. In Saudi, he speaks about his zeal. His zeal, especially for God's righteousness. A zeal that God would restore his righteousness in this world, this fallen, broken world. God must act and reestablish his righteousness. And then in Kaf and continuing into Raish, beginning in verse 145, psalmist talks much about prayer. As the psalmist waits and expects God's deliverance of his people, he's a man of prayer, lifting up his voice to God continually, day and night, asking God to be near, asking God again to deliver him from his enemies. And as we come to the final two stanzas, which we considered just last week, we find in the Sin and Shin stanza, we find the psalmist in what we might say is a state of spiritual maturity. He is a psalmist who is, he is suffering so terribly. And you might expect him to be bitter for this long waiting, long waiting for God to act on behalf of his people. And yet he is not weighed down by bitterness, but he expresses his fear of God. He expresses joy in God, in his word. He expresses his love for God. He expresses praise for God. He expresses hope in his God. And in the final stanza, we find this pattern, a pattern of offering up these petitions to God, following by praise of his God. In his, in his prayers, he doesn't just ask for things, but he, he prays. We see that pattern First two verses of the Tav stanza, he asks, he makes requests, and then verses 171 and 172, he offers his praise. And he seems to follow the same pattern, verses 173 and 174, expressing his petitions, and then verse 175, expressing his praise. And the way that we expect this psalm to end is with a final grand expression of praise to his God. It would fit, it would fit the pattern of this stanza, and yet that's not what he does. He ends on the seemingly down note. Verse 176, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. It is a striking and unexpected way for this psalmist to end. What is he, what is he expressing here? We might wonder if the psalmist has fallen again. Has he rebelled against God the way he did earlier, and as he reflected upon earlier? Well, that seems unlikely in the context in which he is describing himself as spiritually mature in a way that he had not earlier in the psalm. We might wonder if perhaps this is just the psalmist expressing the fact that he remains a sinner. I mean, we're all sinners as long as we're in this life. Is this just a way to express that? Probably not. In the Old Testament, we find a number of texts that express a similar sentiment as this last verse of Psalm 119. The idea of going astray, of being a lost sheep of needing a shepherd to seek them. 
And given the way that many other texts in the Old Testament speak, and given the context of Psalm 119, the psalmist here is probably expressing one last time the fact that he is a sojourner, that he is in exile, that he is not secure in the promised land, enjoying the blessing of God. He and his compatriots are scattered. Think about a few other Old Testament texts with me for a moment. Psalm 80 calls on the shepherd of Israel. That's God, of course. Psalm 80 calls on the shepherd of Israel to lead them like a flock. And for that psalmist, that means that God needs to stir up his might. He needs to save them. He needs to restore them. Sounds a lot like Psalm 119. Psalm 80 also expresses the idea that God has been angry with his people. He's angry at their prayers. He has given them over to their enemies. God has broken down Israel's walls. It sounds like God's judgment against his people for their disobedience. An awful lot like Psalm 119. What does the psalmist of Psalm 80 say? What does he ask for from God in response to this? He asked God to put his right hand on the man of his right hand, the son of man he made strong for himself. The psalmist looks for a son of man, a man of God's right hand to come and deliver his people. They need a great shepherd whom God would appoint to deliver them from their state of exile. Or we might consider Ezekiel 34. Remember that Ezekiel wrote during the early days of the Babylonian exile. In Ezekiel 34, God condemns the human shepherds of Israel. Israel had shepherds. They had kings. They had other office bearers, other leaders. And yet Ezekiel 34 condemns them. God says that they have harmed the flock. They have not helped the flock. Ezekiel 34 describes the flock as full of the sick, of the injured, of strays, and of the lost. Sounds a lot like the end of Psalm 119. Ezekiel 34 says that the sheep have become food for all the wild beasts. And so what does God say in Ezekiel 34 in response? God says, I myself will come. And I will seek my people. I will search for my lost and strained sheep. And I will gather them from all the countries in which they are scattered. God himself would come and rescue his people from their exile. Or just one more other Old Testament text. Isaiah 40, verse 11. Isaiah wrote before the exile, but he prophesied about the exile. And in Isaiah 40, he prophesies about God's deliverance of his people from the exile. What, will, what would it be like for Israel when God delivered them? Isaiah 40, verse 11 says that when they return from exile, God would tend his flock like a shepherd. He would gather the lambs in his arms. He would carry them in his bosom. He would gently lead those with young. 
This, it seems, is the hope, the petition, the plea of our psalmist at the end of Psalm 119. Deliver your people from their exile. Deliver your people from being scattered among the nations. Brothers and sisters, as we read in John 10 earlier, Christ the Good Shepherd is the answer to the psalmist's plea. In a way, it is obvious to anyone who has read the New Testament. Christ has come. God had said that he would seek his people. The Son of Man of his right hand would come and seek his people. Christ the God-man has come. He has already laid down his life for his people. He has done what he said, that he would gather his sheep, not only the ones close by, but those who are far away. He would find them, and he would gather them. And indeed, that is what he has done. As his gospel has gone out through all the world, as he has gathered Gentiles as well as Jews. And as we consider Psalm 119, as we consider the end of this psalm, it is important that we recognize that we who live under the new covenant, we are not wandering sheep in the way that our psalmist was. Christ has purchased us. He has welcomed us into his sheepfold. If you are a baptized member of Christ's church. When you were welcomed into the church, you were welcomed into the sheepfold of the Lord Jesus Christ. Already you are members of that fold. Already the New Testament tells us you are citizens of heaven. You are heirs of the restored heavenly promised land. Heirs of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You who trust in Christ, you who are members of his church, you have already been sought. You have already been found. You have already been brought in. The psalmist wanted God to act in a way that he has now acted. And the New Testament does not describe the church as wandering sheep in the way that the Old Testament repeatedly described the Old Covenant people, as wandering sheep. As the Apostle Peter put it at the end of 1 Peter 2, you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. There is much blessing here. There is much we still don't understand, of course, much that is still puzzling and troubling about our lives in this world. But we know so much more than the psalmist of God's saving work, and we enjoy blessings far beyond what our old covenant forefathers enjoyed. And yet, as 1 Peter 2 also says, it is very interesting, that very chapter from which I read just half a minute ago, 1 Peter 2 reminds us that we are sojourners and exiles. We new covenant people. We are sojourners and exiles in this world. Why? Because we're not in heaven. We have been sought and found. We have been made members of the sheepfold of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet we're not in glory yet. 
And that means life still has many trials. It has many temptations. This is why so much of Psalm 119 can strike us as strikes us so close to home as we read about the psalmist's difficulties, his, his struggles with enemies, and we are tempted. We can be tempted to wander. We can be tempted, even as we press on in our walk before the Lord, we can be tempted to wander from the sheepfold. And sometimes we see our fellow church members wander We see those who we counted among us. We see them leave the fold. We see them deny Christ. It breaks our hearts. There is a place in the the New Testament which speaks about the people of God as sheep with the possibility of wandering. And that is in Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, Jesus told a parable. He told a parable about a shepherd who has a hundred sheep. And one of those sheep wanders off. And what happens? The shepherd goes after that sheep. The shepherd doesn't just wave goodbye, but he pursues that sheep. And the very next text in Matthew 18 tells us how Jesus is pleased to do that in this present age. He does it through his church. He does it through the keys of the kingdom. The church, on behalf of Christ, speaks a word of reconciliation, a word of restoration, a word of repentance to those who wander off. And so as we come to the end of this psalm, one of the words that comes to us is, know your blessing as the sheep, the redeemed, gathered, sought and found sheep of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not wander away. Do not leave the sheepfold. Do not leave his church where he has so graciously gathered you. But if you are tempted to do so, perhaps in your heart you have, perhaps you're sitting here today, but in your heart you have already forsaken Christ. Or perhaps someday... Someday you will leave the church. And by God's grace, you will remember these words. If you are tempted to wander, if you are wandering, if you will wander, and Christ through his church calls you back, listen to his word. Listen to his gracious word. Why? Why leave the flock? Why wander in a hostile, barren land where there is no water? Return to Christ. Be fed by your shepherd who loves you and cares for you and has laid down his life for you. Let's pray.